if you limit it by things that you know, the things that you have, the skills that you have, in some indirect way, it allows you to work with many other people that, okay, I can do these things, what can you do, you know? And it wasn't an out, outward direct kind of organizing. In some ways it was. If we were able to, if we want to get this done, then we have to work in some ways together. Yeah. You know. Good morning, good afternoon, and or good evening to you VBM listeners. Today I have a conversation with the artist and in many ways philosopher Bird Samples, and we discuss a lot of things in this interview, from the history of the Texas Southern University Art Department to Charles White, Dr. John Biggers, the value of collectives, the value of education, um, and his introduction into the art world in many ways. And you can hear me typing rapidly throughout this conversation because it's some of the things that you have to do researching while you're talking to someone who's like a human encyclopedia. Um, I really enjoyed this conversation. It is a slow-paced discussion. The interview jumps right into the conversation with no introduction. Here's birth samples. And they were both educated, right? For a long time. Yeah. Uh, Charles White and his wife, Elizabeth Catholic, was already at Hampton University when Dr. Biggers ever went there. So he was his one of his main influences at Hampton. He studied on him, got his basic concept of drawing and working in art. And uh, it's a famous mural that he did on campus where he used Dr. Biggers as his primary model. And when you look that at that one, the, or you said there, I think, it, is it the one that's on the back? No. No, it looks more like a Mexican mural. It's done the same thing, it's, but it's very well drawn and mannered. You may not see it in this. Yeah, this is it, right here. That's, that, that's Dr. John Biggers right there. Hmm. Yeah, see it says the contributions of Negroes to democracy, Egg Tempera, Hampton University, June 1943. So that's where he got his concepts of learning to do murals. It was from Biggers. I mean from Mr. White. Yeah. And he picked up a lot of his drawing styles where he emphasized powerful hands and feet. Because he emphasized, you know, the African American in this country worked very hard using their hands and feet. Mm. They were the actual, the machines of this country for centuries. That's why we would put these hands. And that parallels this kind of design that you would see like works by Siqueiros and uh, by outside of Charles White and uh, Hill Woodruff was another uh, muralist. So in a way with art you can teach your history of your people who you are 
as well as embrace their and hold their imagination. Yeah, but this is him right there. And right here is Lead Belly. Dr. B used to always talk about him. Booker T. Washington, Dr. George Washington Carver. And when Dr. Biggs first came here, one of the first things he did, he, uh, he did this mural called the um, talking about the emancipation of uh, the Negro women uh, with the Sojourner Truth and uh, Harriet Tubman. And it's a mural that's at the Blue Triangle YWCA on uh, Third Ward off of uh, McGowan. So it was just a few blocks from from, uh, from Project Row Houses. Uh, he was, that was his thesis when he was getting his PhD. But when he was at uh, Hampton, his main influence outside of Charles White was uh, a major educator. He originally was from Germany. He was a Jewish man that had to escape the tyranny of Nazism. And uh, it'll come to once I continue to talk about it. <clears throat> I can see his face and everything. But he left Hampton and went to Penn State University and got his uh, master's and doctor's degree. And then that's when he left there and came to to Houston and started the art program with uh, Mr. Mack, Joseph Mack, who was also a student of Charles White. And Mack also left Houston and started an art program at Fairview University. So most of the or at least two of the art programs um, that we have here in Texas are directly inspired by and influenced by Charles White. Well, I, I'm trying to think of this man's name. I think Victor Lowenfeld? Victor Lowenfeld. I think he's the major influence because he turned Dr. Vickers to look at, up to that point, when you look at that mural there, you see some major accomplishments by some amazing individuals in this country. But I think Vic Lorenfeld really uh, influenced Dr. Biggers to see African Americans and their, and their legacy, their lineage from Africa and see the, the grand and the beauty and how cultures from all over the world was influenced by African cultures and art. And once he studied with Lohenfeld, then you can see a radical change in his art. It wasn't more just kind of a natural figurative style like that, but it became more angular. And, and so he started collecting a lot of uh, African sculpture from that point on. And by this time he had already traveled maybe once or twice to Africa. Uh, I think one for sure under the NESCO grant where he went to the East Africa. He had two grants where he traveled to East Africa and West Africa. And the, the mural that's now in the, 
the Texas Southern University Art Museum called the Web of Life that was completed. He started before his trip to Africa and he completed it once he came back. And you could see there was a transition in his work beginning at that point. But it follows the history of what he started off at, you know. And, uh, you know, he grew up in uh, Gastonia, North Carolina, and he worked very much with his mother washing people's clothes and boiling hot water. And uh, so you would always see like a, a big iron pot in a lot of his, his art. And he would organize everything in a certain way, a washing board, a pot, an African cone, and they would be streamlined and regimented in a way where it's, you would see it in the same design as a quilt. So he learns a lot of concepts of design looking at African art through textiles and different other types of kind of formations. Um, but I'd say Victor Lohenfeld was the one that had the most influence on him being an educator and pursuing his art through education and creating an art department. When I arrived there, the, the art department had been in existence for a good 20, maybe 30 years before then. And so you can see a legacy of, of students that have been coming from all over Texas and the South and getting an, a degree in art education. And their main premise was to give them some tools so they can survive and have a, a steady employment through education and educating other people through art, but also, also creating a strong discipline while they're there that they, would, they must continue to work on their own art. What were some of the courses like that the child? Well, that you first start off taking design and drawing and and then uh, printmaking, ceramics, sculpture, weaving, painting, and in the final once you've gone through all those courses and give you a different amount of work and credits, then you apply to do a mural if everything falls into place. You know, and you know that a lot of people couldn't get through that that program because they were trying to high, set high standards back then. They knew there was not going to be a program in any, in any uh, in the country any any other place. It could have allowed you to just get an art degree, a bachelor's arts degree, you know, without finishing any work, but just doing some of the amounts of things that they wanted you to do for credit and move on and then teach art, like a lot of places. Not to say you couldn't complete the work, but they wanted you to have a certain level of accomplishment once you did a work that it can be presented on the walls in the, the hallways, which was like the, the gallery space of the museum. So they were holding a higher standard for themselves and for their students, even mm -hmm. though the administration wasn't in in concert with them in many cases because they knew that they had a degree, you had a, a bachelor's degree, sometimes it was equivalent to a bachelor's and a master's degree in other places. Is it as demanding now? It's different now. I think, uh, I'm not there now, but I would imagine that they've been receiving a lot of pressure from the university to get students through the program sooner than later 
because they allow when I was there and you know it was a history of students not finishing and and then to go and get a job and then come back and work in the evenings or during the summer on the weekends to finish up something so they could get finish their get their completions on their courses and their credits. And so when Dr. Biggers and Mr. Sims there, it was a different uh, standard and regulation there. But uh, once they left, I don't think the university would allow them to keep that type of thing on. They've been pressured like, to get people through programs and graduate from it. So a lot of the, the teachers that were there when I was there and, and studied and taught on Dr. Biggers, a lot of them, if not all of them, have moved on. Except for Mr. Sufuentes, he was a classmate of mine, so he was studying at the same time I was there. Are there any programs um, that you have know that you know or have heard of that are like similar to the one that you went through? Uh, the only one probably come closer would probably maybe be Fairview at the time, but I don't know anything in particular about it. Well, I mean today. Today, I I'm not that close with any. You know, education, and I think you know it's the program that exists at Texas University right now. It's probably the closest it's as it's been when Dr. Biggers and Mr. Sims was there. I, I can't think of any other program in the country. I haven't heard of any program in the country that has done it in the same way. And you know, in some ways it's unfortunate because uh, there was uh, a lot of students and work that probably has not been documented enough or well enough so the, the public would understand, you know, the accomplishments or the concept of, of running a program like that and what was in the collection. So as a student, uh, coming from, I guess, a rigorous program, you likely take a different approach to your murals and all your pieces before you start them. Like, what are some of the processes that you go through before you figure out, you know, what you're about to paint? Are you actively still painting now? Not at the moment, no, but uh, one thing I want to emphasize is that at that time, and for the most time, most uh, students didn't see or have any opportunities to pursue their art in a professional way because there was no venues for the African American artists, you know, the galleries would like come in and visit and pick them up and exhibit their work. Not in Houston, for sure. Probably not in Texas. Maybe a few places that you can attend festivals like in Atlanta or go to New York or go to uh, D.C. Now I haven't been to Howard University but maybe something there and I've only visited Hampton University once so they may have something there too but I just know in, when I came up I had no aspirations of how I was going to make it as an artist. I was just I was just determined how to find a way to make something happen. Just seeing the legacy of, of some of the few that had made it. But in most cases, if they did make it, they were they were teaching at a at a university or school somewhere in the country. But if they were here, they were they were teachers in high schools, they were juniors, junior high, or working in a professional field in design or, or some other. How did you in, in the article, um, it said that you discovered, or 
by turning right when your your friend turned left you know oh that was my cousin that was your cousin turned left was that your introduction into I guess like you know well up to that point I was like just got out of high school barely what do you mean well it's just you know it was just the stress of like just growing up as a young black person and thinking not really about your future in very you know precise manners you know of going here to there I wasn't I wasn't looking at going to school right after high school you know once I got through high school it's like okay that stuff is over with for me you know it was just surviving through a different type of program and regimen but I always was doing music and art but not taking it too seriously, but when I did, I really put myself into it for those moments. My parents were very determined for me to continue to get in school, and so when we took our college entrance exam together with my cousin, we walked out of there, and uh, I said to myself, I don't know if I did so well as an entrance, so I didn't think that I had an opportunity to continue, and uh, and I don't know if he actually said it, but it just the way I remembered it, though, that said, I think I'm just going to start working for the uh, telephone company. I think we said that to my grandfather because we went over there to talk with him afterwards. But at some point, I went through the uh, the administration building at Texas University and I started slowly noticing these murals, these paintings on the walls. And I happened to see one of my teachers uh, painting on and I asked him what it what do you have to do to do something like this? And he said, well, you have to get enrolled in the university and, and go over to this building on the other side of the railroad tracks and tell you you want to enroll in school. And so... This was one of your high school teachers or one of your... Uh, this is one of my... It wasn't my t- current... Oh, one of your one future professors. Future professors, yeah. And so once you sign up, then they, they got you focused on doing the work every day, doing the work, and, you know, do your other academic stuff too but you know but emphasizing you have to stay and do this work because uh, they just instilled on you don't you need to establish a very serious work habit that that has to be almost primal and primary for you to get it and they made it they didn't make it easy for you they make it difficult they knew it was going to be even more difficult once you left can you talk about some of those lessons that were in your head as you were doing it regarding like cultural psychology and thinking about like African histories and world histories? Well, a lot of that was beyond my my consciousness. My own. Well, I had to just work on things that I had experiences with, and it was a it was a kind of a dogma that they wanted you to do, you know. And in some ways, I was bucking against that because. The things that I, what they wanted me to do, like the shotgun houses, railroad tracks, and and certain things, that became almost like iconic, because it was, you know, every teacher was set an example of what Dr. Biggers had did, and the way he did, it. and they wanted, because they were taught in a very similar way, but they wanted you to infuse your kind of history and experience through that but you had to get the discipline of how to do the work at the same time and sometimes it was it was very confusing and students that fought against that eventually came up with something pretty unique and once they saw something unique they let you let you go with it but until until that time they just stay with you and say you just need to continue to work on this and work on this and work on it and some people didn't didn't relate to that 
and they just did what they needed to do. They told them, I don't think I'm going to be able to do this after this. I'm not interested in it's just becoming a teacher. And some people just moved through it because they came in as educators as a major, and they had just a few courses that aren't they needed to, mm-hmm. to do. And so they moved on. But once they saw somebody with, with talent, then they, they wanted to see how much that they... So they encouraged them early on, like, you got something really going here. Who were who were some of you know like your classmates that you noticed um, also had some talents like that? Well, besides uh, there was a lot of people: John Davis, Ricky Donato, J.W. Sampson, Jesse Cervantes. You know, uh, uh, Moses Adams. A lot of some of these people were ahead of us. But they, we noticed they came back. You know, they used to come, back, come in afternoons, and hang with us, or come after work in the evenings and worked. And so you got a sense that you could always work after hours, because the teacher was there still working. You know, so something I learned years later that you know, that building never closed down. It was like a, a factory. People were always working on their work, you know, all day and long into the evenings. And and I met some people that years later that and they talked more directly about their their experience and the things it was like. But it was a different it was a different uh it was a different uh environment, situation. But, you know, and it was very competitive in some levels that Everyone was encouraging each other to do the work, and some people were, were struggling with it, and you're trying to get them to encourage to stick with it. Um, so it was a it was a certain type of passion that you had in uh, doing the work with your with your group. We um, before you know we started the interview, I, we were talking about this idea of somebody who's like self-educated. Yeah. And um, whether or not somebody who's self-taught around certain things mm-hmm. can be of influence, mm-hmm. um, and also leave students behind. When you were a student, did you feel like your work had more serious uh, content when you were a, still a student, or after you had graduated and you had been doing more independent reading and all this? I think you know while I was there, I I was allowed to, for the most part work on the things that I like to work and I like to do something different every time I, I paint it. Mm-hmm. I didn't want to stay with the same type of, you know, Cubist style. I worked in the naturalistic style, but I, I engaged some of the, the themes in a way that I could relate to it, that brings some of that connection to my personal history. Where, where are you from? You're from Houston. Yeah. <clears throat> Which part of Houston? I grew up in Sunnyside. <clears throat> And but like in the article, I, my very early years was in Fifth Ward, so that's where my grandparents were from, on my mother's side. But uh, I think over the years, uh, it was a great opportunity. While Dr. Biggs was there, I used to just let him just tell things that he had observed and learned in his travels. So his stories that he told about 
investigating certain regions and translating the roots of words, uh, the history of words, the roots of languages, talked about geography, chemistry, science in a way that you could relate to it. And this was in the art history classes? In the this wasn't art history. It was just him talking with us at times. If we're doing in class, you know, or sometimes a lot of time out of class, you know, he can just go on onto a topic and just carry it into many different directions. You know, by this time he was highly celebrated as an artist in Houston and in the country. So um, he was very much, you know, our our teacher and mentor. So I listened with a, a level of of intensity of things that he said and how he said it and how he illuminated, you know, certain subjects in a way. Is there any particular lesson that you still remember to this day? Nothing in particular, but he made me see the world in a different way. Up to that point, it was just things that you heard. You read in newspaper, things in, in, on television. That's how the world came into my world, through those primary mediums. And I grew up in a very kind of, very much a segregated community, you know, not openly politically segregated, but economically, you know, and socially, is that there were certain confinements that I became more aware of once I got into college, and knowing that a lot of people that I was in school with in high school, that was my past. So he gave me a sense of there's a future there that you may not have been aware of, that you can, you can see the world differently than working for you know, in a factory of doing some type of physical hard labor. Could you describe the black arts community as you see it? And this is, I, I want to be respectful of your time. This is going to be my last question. Okay. Do you, could you describe the black arts community as you see it, having been influenced by the Biggers program and how some of those teachings have influenced the development of Project Warehouse and not, I guess, in the 90s. I don't, I don't want to come too far into the you know, 2000s. Well, I think the beginning of Project Warehouse is very much rooted in the vision of Dr. Biggers, the concept of how he saw the row houses, very immaculate and structured, proud women standing on their front porch with the essential elements that they they needed and used for their their existence for them and their primarily their families to grow in. So it was a very nurturing kind of thing. And then and taking that concept into the era where Row Houses is and having that as a vision to work towards, you know, at this point, at that point, the houses were abandoned and dilapidated. Uh, no activity was going on there, at least no legal activity. And so it was uh, just a desire to create something, an opportunity to create something unique for, y for p potential young artists that would come through the TSU program or any other program, give them a basic foundation to spring forward from. Because once the overall art community came there and started working, because that was a different another time and different era. It was a lot of just community spirit going on on both sides of the tracks. That was a you know making that transition going from TSU to University of Houston and then working out at the Lawndale space. Then you that's another expansion of my awareness and horizon and learning people from different walks of life, whether from this city or 
another state, another country, and meeting <coughs> different artists and musicians on different levels, and uh, and seeing how they would operate, and developing certain kind of, I would say, some essential survival skills. You know, how artists can survive doing their work without no immediate gratification. I think that could be a struggle for young artists today is that you have tools where you can get some immediacy from. You know, we live in a, in a very fast-driven data, you know, information age. And you can assimilate and gather a lot of material and work on different concepts and set certain things up. Um, because of how uh, the tools that are, but um, if you're limited by things that you know, the things that you have, the skills that you have, in some indirect way, it allows you to work with many other people. That okay, I can do these things. What can you do? You know, and. It wasn't out, outward direct kind of organizing. In some ways it was. If we were able to, if we want to get this done, then we have to work in some ways together. Yeah. You know, listen, there's a space over there that's open and, you know, eight or ten of us can move in there. But we all need to get in there and clean it out. we got to make sure that we can pay for, you know, the rent, you know, collectively, and we can set it up where you have this space and that space, and things can go. And you know, once those things started happening, those stories caught on pretty quickly, and it started setting a different type of movement. It's another kind of expansion, like when I came to TSU, and not not being aware of the potential of becoming an artist, just beyond my talent wasn't good enough not because my skill wasn't good enough but if you do the work and it's being collected and exhibited in some ways in our environment then you have a certain kind of history with it and a reference for other people to see and if there's other artists that come from that program that are already out there that's your kind of direct relation with them such as Kermit Oliver, and to see how he worked. He's someone that became very well known and was extremely prolific when he was at, uh, in the program at TSU and has had a very extremely successful career as an artist. He's a family man, but he works every day at the post office too, so he, he was able to raise a family and do his art and do it very successfully. And so he was one of the primary, outside of Dr. Vickers, one of my kind of uh, major role uh, influence. Not just me, but many other young uh, art students. And I had a fortune once I got out of TSU, I studied with him for about a year. And, and just seeing the things that I learned from Dr. Vickers, what are the parallels and the differences in the way they approached the art and how they they did it, and the outcome and things that I could relate more with him than I could with Dr. Biggers at the time, 
but as you move forward in time, then you, then all those things, those differences become immaterial. Because essentially, the way you work and see as as, as a practicing artist, it all becomes somewhat essentially the, the same thing. Because a community of artists, as overall, of the community, it's a small community within the community, and how the community doesn't see the artist as a viable structure or implement in society, particularly in Texas, is not really that an honorable position. There was very deep concerns when I got my bachelor's degree that I was going to be able to do something with that. My grandpa was very troubled by that. He knew how hard I worked for it, but he knew that that was not going to do anything that has steady employment. So uh, staying in, in the different types of education programs and then art programs that sustain me. So it went from just from universities to a fellowship to working full-time at the museum, which is a different type of art education there. So there's different types of education, but at each plateau, there's a great, there's a, a different kind of expansion of awareness of people, culture, history, you know, and art. And how all those relate to each other. And a lot of time, you know, Project Row Houses came into being then, that became a, another different type of relationship and entity. Because mm. they were not bound by the same laws like the other, the other programs were. I mean, in many ways, Row Houses is continually reinventing itself. So about time you got there, it had been in existence for 20 years. Two decades. Most programs, non-profit, non-profit organizations would be extreme success if they last 10 years. Most, at the time that I'm deserving, between three to five years. Then it goes into a, a steep decline. But I think because there was always an art community that was somewhat thriving, not always collectively, most cases in tandem with other groups or individually, but Row Houses exists because it had a national, international connection. It was always receiving attention from sources beyond the physical elements of Third War. I have so many more questions, but I said that was going to be my last one. I'll give you one or two more. Okay. Because I think it's raining outside, so I'm not eager to go out <laughs> there right now. <laughs> it is raining. You mentioned um, like the cooperative kind of attitude at the birth of Project Row House. Could, is there a way that you could maybe explain or tell me some of the ways that you saw that type of behavior out even coming from Row House and then developing around the community in other forms? I think it started when I was at Lawndale, the University Student Program. How long were you there? I was there for about five years. And this is right after you graduated TSU? Uh, 
I took a year off, studied with Carmen Oliver for a year. And then I was, I got into a program there. And it was very, uh, felt alienated because, uh, you know, coming out of TSU, I, I didn't see anyone that resembled me in what I was, or who I am, and what I did. But I was kind of accepted by a few faculty members, but it was a kind of a coldness. So I had to learn that I'm not going to have this nurturing environment to work, to be creative in. At first, so I have to find my own kind of rules of, of, of working and establishing my identity very strongly. So it, I looked very deep inside it because my discipline from tissue, you know, I developed a way of working and continuing reading things. And But there were classmates that I got to learn and know uh, that we had a mutual respect and affinity with each other. And then it's, it's, the, it's that learning thing once over again. It's not just you against the world, it's us against the world. I mean, it wasn't just me being kind of alienated by the program. It was everybody over there that was, had been alienated. And then when you take it beyond that building, then you realize the whole art community was being alienated. How did y'all deal, deal with that? Well, we had opportunity. We had a physical space to work, and we had, you know, uh, two or uh, three uh, vibrant uh, professors that were successful artists. At Lawndale. At Lawndale and beyond, and they wanted to do something for the artists in the community there. So they set up an organization that operated outside the the rules of the of the university and enlisted and that's where this place comes into connection. The station. Yeah. Because Searles was the uh, the major influence along with Bert Mahone, who I met right after I got out of undergrad school. And was he was one of the first people I saw working exclusively as a professional artist. And and gave me some uh, guidelines that, okay, you can be an artist and make a living and provide your your family with the work that you do, you know, and, um, and then... What were some of the, what were some of the things that he, that he said? Well, he, he approached his, his work and his, his daily kind of tasks that he got up every morning and he, he went out on the road and he started meeting with people that were potential uh, sponsors of him doing his work. He presented himself professionally as a, someone that is very serious about the art and is very productive, very creative. And uh, he said, I'm gonna be, I've already been successful doing this. I'm gonna continue to be successful, even more successful. If you wanna get a part of this, then you need to start investing in, in and the work that I'm doing. And he was extremely serious about that. And he presented himself just like any other 
businessmen out there that just got a degree and they worked and and a lot of their their talk is based on on stories and lies and they become successful in this their their stories um, but I never saw anyone that can you know had that power of, of persuading people and who they are particularly a black man you know working in a, in the overall white community selling themselves that they're going to that they're successful and these are the things they do and they work very hard at what they do and so as I always say well you can say everything that you need to say but at the end of the day you still have to do the work and you have to, and to do the work you have to work at it and so save your spiel until you have the work done because <laughs> otherwise it just might it just might just bounce like you know off the walls and no one can work on it now. But uh, but because Cyril's at, at at Lawndale and had a connection with Jim Harris, who was uh, the director at the CAM, he did a show called The Fire Show. He was a guest curator and it was one of the first shows that I know of that showed local and regional artists in Houston. And that happened right at the same time that I, I entered into the University of Houston program. And then there was like a, a citywide exhibition called the Powwow Show. All you had to do was do something about a book size and you could hang it on the wall. You just had and just filled up, you know, wall after wall with just work. No one was, was refused. And it started the tradition that I think Diverse Words can carried on called the Salon They Refuse shows. Um, and so there was a lot of uh, energy being gathered and growing from those kind of things where you could see, you know, people at different ages and different levels and being at different levels of success and operating. And it's interesting that this was in a warehouse space in a kind of a semi-warehouse district. So you saw people get up every morning and work, go to the work in these factories and artists and art students go to this warehouse and do their work in the same, in a similar fashion. And I think this was like a subconscious kind of awareness that was brewing. And then once you got out of the program, you saw some of the fruits of what things that had happened in this building in this, and and said, well, why can't we do this another place? So it spawned it certain activities in other spaces in warehouse spaces, you know, and there's other cities like New York and Chicago and San Francisco where you can see artists that's they move into these kind of abandoned spaces and create an art community there. And so we said the same thing, why can't we do that there? And then there, there was uh, a growing group, people come from different walks of life, you know, you know, interested in seeing this type of activity happening 
and uh, so there was always something going on. So you see a networking happening where artists come to these openings that's showing artists from other cities in these galleries. And they start meeting people and they start talking to them. Well, you know, I'm an artist and I have this, I do this work. Why don't you come over and see some of my work? You know, we're all in this warehouse here. Yeah. You know, and so that's what they basically call networking. But at that point, it still was operating. I'm talking, I'm selling myself. I'm not selling my work, other people's work to you. I'm talking about you. I want you to come in. And some people are very su successful in presenting themselves that way, better than others. But they were not supporting anybody else at the time. So at some point that was an awareness, okay, we're all doing these same things, but at some point um, it came to my attention meeting Rick and knowing Jesse and and Bert and James that okay we're out there doing the same thing we're trying to sell ourselves to these different people but we're not doing it in a collective sense and so that was several gatherings where we started talking and meeting and getting more serious about it of course Jesse and Bert had already been out there for a while so they saw this type of activity having some level of success. And so uh, you start getting some interest and support from people in key positions, mm -hmm. you know, to do something. And then we start organizing different meetings, you know, and we, st uh, there was uh, another effort was to unionize the overall art community. And once we, you know, formed in, in some form or fashion as a union, then that got a lot of artists' attention. What was the union? The union was designed to organize individual artists to do certain types of activities and to be under a certain organization <clears throat> where they can be considered an entity in itself and to function like a union would in other places. So there was certain that if the if it was successful then it could be represented and honored in a city or statewide level or even a national level. What was the name of the union? The UIA Union of Independent Artists. And that was here in, in the city? Mm hmm What year was it? Like nineteen ninety six? It was before then. This was before the this was before Project Houses. It happened for like several years, right before our houses, and we were kind of under the umbrella of like different organizations and individuals. But we clearly identified ourselves. We were selling t-shirts, we, we printed newsletters. We were getting the word out to a lot of people that this is who we are, this is what we're gonna be doing. But think about, you know, there's no really organized union operating in the South. Not in Texas. This is a non-union state. So, for artists to be call themselves that we are a union of artists. Now, musicians can do that, and they've done it, but they have the uni the national support of that type of 
situation going. You know, there's laws in many parts of the country that that protect artists in in their work and the labor they work. But here it was it was like not acknowledged on any level. I don't know how dangerous the talk was, but and you know, I never saw anyone got lynched or dragged by a car for calling themselves, you know, a union <laughs> artist a union. They people just kinda of like, yeah, right, whatever, you know, and moved on. But it 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 did accomplish a lot of things where we started taking ourselves serious enough where we could be organized and organized as a group and continue to move forward. But like everything, artists use those advantages for their own sense of need. And so it stayed together for a few years and then moved on. Everyone moved on to a different direction. Mm -hmm. But we moved on over to the row houses. So it's, it's a lot of confluences of gatherings of people moving and and stating not stating but just creating a certain type of activity but to do something in in our area and identify just to support uh, a group of people in the community that won't be honored or acknowledged in the same way and it comes it comes cyclical back to Dr. Biggers because of his vision of seeing the beauty in the people of Third War and transforming these these abandoned buildings, these abandoned houses, and turn them into spaces where artists can exhibit their work and exhibit in a way where people in the neighborhood can see, oh, this guy's just turned something like this I saw on a curb into something. You know, why are they over there cleaning out those houses? What's the purpose of that? And then they said, well, they have gatherings there, and they're consistent at it, and they have festivals. Why do you think more artists haven't done that in the city with the, takes, on the scale of Project Rose? It takes a lot of patience, commitment by a lot of people, collectively and individually, and they have to share a common vision for that people buy into it and not just the people that are working on the campus of houses but people in key positions in other parts of the city and beyond you know and then once it got started getting funding and it started getting different types of level of support and structures and then when people start writing more about it and writing books and and teaching courses you know then it becomes something completely, you know, different. I mean, that becomes, you know, a vision that has spawned out of another person's vision. It's not like one day someone woke up, I can see it all in front of me right now. Just you just start moving, your energy inertia takes you down this path. Then you run into this person, then y'all just started talking, walking working, not that you're doing the same thing, but all of a sudden, what are those two doing? Then someone comes over. So 
what it appears on the outside is something different of the thing happening, but what is consistent with being observed from the outside and the inside is a certain energy that is, has sustained itself and has built mass. Hmm. You just have to reflect on how you came to the awareness of row houses and what were the elements that got you there. Um, my godfather lives around the corner. Mm -hmm. You know, when I was younger, my mother used to bring me to some of the Kwanzaa events and things like that. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, shape was a part of the gro growth and birth of uh, row houses too. So there's a community, a, a circle of people, uh, elders in the community that have always been there that have sustained it. You know, Reverend McGee, um, um, your godfather, you said? Kenya. Kenya, yeah. So he's been in the community for a long time. Um, Mr. Payne, Mrs. Ms. Courtney. Ms. Courtney was a primal person that she changed the direction of, you know, we thought we were just young artists, that we could do something, we were gonna change the world. And she said, listen, let me get, let me just stretch, set you straight. You won't last five minutes unless you start doing these things. And then reality hit. So what was kind of being like a very kind of idealized concept. Oh, if we just make our people just believe in everything that we do and that follows. I said, no, I've lived in this, in this neighborhood for years. I know what it takes to survive. And that's what you got to learn first, is how to survive. Well, some of the stuff she said, like, you know, over some of her... Well, she didn't take no golf out for anybody. You got to realize, and it's still the elements. I mean, look where the throw houses is. It's in a very impoverished environment. A, a lot of abandoned buildings, now abandoned lots. Now, you don't see it as much because people are moving back in. But that was an area where everything had a lot of back taxes on them. People that wanted to buy property, they could just just pay off the back taxes and, and doing something. But it wasn't being protected because there was so much unemployment, there was a lot of crime and drugs in the area. And that was the main industry going on in that, in the neighborhood. So the steps, I mean, just like everything, once artists move into a, an environment, you know, before then, it has been totally just been, been uh, shunned and ignored by most part of this, of the city and community, as undesirable. Not just the physical space, but all the elements that is in that space. Like thinking that well, it's just a lot of abandoned buildings at first glance or about first drive-by. Matter of fact, the first show that Row Houses was, it was called the Drive-By Show, where the buildings, the house was not completely clear, cleaned out. So we just put art on the on the boards of uh, boarded up windows. Mm -hmm. I see and, that. And when we first cleaned out the first two houses, on the other end, well, the, uh, on the opposite end of the double two-story house, We'd be sitting on the porch and we would have a sign clearly on the corner, clearly said houses were painted, 
Rajura houses. And people drive, they wouldn't stop. They would just slow up. They would look and they would drive on. So it was called the drive-by show. So there was, people don't, maybe that can't even conceive that, but you know, Houston was built in rings of freeways of 610, Beltway 8, Highway 6, and then beyond that, all these levels of development where people were constantly moving further and further and further out. The inner rings of the city were being operated by people that, particularly in the rural houses area, of generation after generation of people that were renters. They did not, they just lived in the houses, they did not own anything there. Their sense of ownership was not in those structures. Their sense of purpose and value, that that was something different. They had to find a different source of that. So when we moved in, they thought we were like any other government program that came in with a grant or two to try to do something, mm -hmm. you know, build out the houses for a while. And some people just wait and see how long that's going to last. You know, as soon as they started breaking down, then that'll be the end of it. So it's, it was a level of, of attrition going on there too. See how long certain businesses in the third world community, you know, had its history and its heyday and then moved on because they're probably family run businesses, you know, and once the elders, you know, moved on, what happened to the business? If it wasn't for um, your arts education at TSU, and if you were just left with your high school education, where do you think you would be today? Probably in and out of prison. You know, I came very close a few times where I got caught in the wrong place at the wrong time. I thought I'd be pursuing, being pursuing, uh, becoming a musician, you know, but a lot of that aspects of becoming a musician was disillusioned by, you know, just the way the music business works. A lot of treachery and deceit and drugs. And so there was not a future there. And my parents tried to tell me as early, early as they were aware of it, you know, you're not going down that road. And I didn't, it's not like I didn't know that they were they were right or wrong. It's just like, I just didn't give it much of a thought. You know, I was just doing things I thought, well, this is cool for me to do. Yeah. I mean, it, it's just like coming, turning a corner at the right time before, you know, the police came in and busted a club or, or leaving right after someone got. And that's, the, that's always the, the element that that's, has always been there, the way the police patrol through the neighborhoods and how you're viewed to them. And a few times you get pulled over and you have to make sure that you ex you know articulate who you are and what you're doing so they won't do the the customary kind of harassment and pushing you to a point where your life is in my in our hands do you think um that project Ross has kind of changed at least that block so that ecology or that environment isn't so threatening i think it has on on different levels i think there's people that have been aware of that and they operate in the community under the law. Cause you gotta realize, like my father told me, if 
four project houses there. That particular property was at some point, it was called the sleeve, where there was a lot of, it was like operating as a black market. People would go in the inner courtyards of that and they would sell whatever they had. And so once artists moved in there and created spaces for people to create art and live in with their kids, then that changed everything. I think the Young Mothers Program is probably the most vital thing to me that keeps it on a unique level than anything. Because once you see people living there and raising their families for a few years and getting an education and skills to sustain themselves, and then that program sustains itself by people coming back and giving young other mothers examples to move forward, forward on. Man, it's almost the same lesson when I was in at TSU. You know, so you have different groups, different programs sustain itself, and you have people, individual people in their homes supporting it. You have the church or church members supporting it. Even though they may not live there anymore, they have a connection to that. To those houses. This is Evers, thank you. Speak to us, Lord Jesus. Speak to the man of God. In Jesus' name, amen. You gotta work hard. You gotta work hard. But if you work hard, that's gonna that you and your family and the community can benefit for, you know. That's what education can do. Not only advances you, but advances. Thanks to all folks. Thank you for listening. I hope you are doing well. Hope you're hustling. And I hope you enjoyed the background music provided by the band and choir at my Aunt Reba's church. Uh, I'm not going to tell you the name of the church, though. <laughs> yeah, that's all. Subscribe on all the different apps Stitcher, iTunes Podcast app, and share with your friends. I'm going to cover the entire city of Houston and gather the Black Arts Anthology uh, for the history of all black arts in Houston. And thank you guys for being on this journey and mission with me. Next time, very black male show. And the church said amen. Look with us at 2 Corinthians chapter.